Good, uh, good morning. It's good to be back. It's been about a couple months. It's been about seven weeks since uh, I and my family have been here, so it's really good to be back. Um, we had a good time. You can read all about it. Uh, not all about, but you can read about it in the letter that um, is in the insert of your, uh, in, in your bulletin. Uh, during our time away, um, I wasn't situated in one particular church. Olivia and the kids were, but I was kind of bouncing around, visiting a bunch of different churches. Uh, ended up going to about eight different churches, and um, without a doubt, without hesitation, if you ask me, hey, what was your favorite church that you went to? Um, I went to a lot of cool churches. Uh, I went to churches um, whose pastors, uh, you've read their books, I'm sure, uh, at least some of them, some of you. Uh, churches that are very famous, that are very uh, well-known and influential in the world, whatever that means. Uh, went to a lot of different churches, but if you were to ask me, what was your favorite church? Uh, without hesitation, I'd be able to tell you which one it was. And for people who know the lay of the land in California, um, some people might be surprised. Say, really? That church? Why? And it was always, always, always goes back to when I walked in, from the time I walked in, like so many people, made, and, and no one knew who I was, but so many people made me feel like I was part of their family. Uh, before I walked into the sanctuary, two people greeted me. Uh, they gave me a gift bag. When I walked into the sanctuary, two people greeted me. Uh, and then even afterwards, I was hanging out at the cafe, just kind of see how they do things, and, and people were coming up to me and talking to me. And I was like, man, this reminds me a lot of home. It's good to be here. It's good to be back. I think uh, of all the churches I've ever been to, there will be no church like this one. Um, it's good to be back. But, you know, d during our time, <clears throat> a lot of great things happened, but some not so great things happened also. One time I was meeting up with a friend of mine, and I, one of the things I was intentional about doing was meeting up with people, some of my mentors, some of my friends, some of my pastor friends, uh, people who are in ministry. And uh, I was in Koreatown hanging out with a friend of mine. Uh, we knew each other from Virginia. He planted a church uh, right outside of Hollywood, doing some really crazy things. Some, some really cool people were going to his church. Um, we were hanging out, uh, drinking coffee and, and, and tea at this, at this coffee shop. And after a couple hours of, of hanging out, I went to, uh, I went to we, we said bye, and I was leaving. And I went to where my car was, and I was like, man, I thought my car was here. And, and I remember I, I had to go feed the meter, and I thought to myself, did I move my car? And I went back to... The, to the cafe, and then I realized my car had gotten towed. So I went back to my friend. I was like, I, I, we're, we're, we're sitting, in, and he was gone. So I called my buddy up. I was like, yo, D, uh, D, his name's Dehan. I said, D, uh, my car got towed, dude. Either that or got jacked, but the sign on the side of the road says that it would be towed. I thought it was okay to park there after 4 p.m., but what it said it was after 4 p.m. It's street sweeping. It means they cleaned the streets because of rush hour. And so uh, my car was gone. It was a rental car. I had no idea what kind it was, had no idea that the, the license plate, no idea where the car was. So we did some investigative journalism, and we found out where the car was and made some phone calls. And he said, oh, I'll take you there. This in the middle of, like, L.A. rush hour traffic. It was, it was a pain. It was awful. We got to the place. Um, they're like, what kind of car? What, what was it? And thankfully, I had the little tag on my keychain that said the make and model and license plate and gave them the information. And they took me back. Like, is this your car? I was like, yeah, it is. They said, it's going to be $270 to, to take off the lot. It's like, $270? That's like bad. That's a lot of money. Like, that's not part of the sabbatical budget here. And so uh, $270, and then on the windshield, to add insult to injury, there was a parking ticket. So my friend grabbed that. He read it. He was like, $170. I was like, oh, my God. That wasn't part of the budget for sure either. And so he took it. He's like, you know what, DL? I can't let you pay this. I'm going to take care of this. And so he took it. We fought over it, but he ended up paying for it. So it wasn't all good. I mean, some good things happened. Some hard things happened. At the end of the trip, though, um, our daughter Manny was in the car as we were going to the airport saying goodbye to her cousins and grandma and grandpa. And, and she was crying. She was crying. Like, I don't want to leave. It's kind of funny to me because it's not, it's not my, you know, well. <laughs> She's crying. I'm sad. I'm sad. And I, I remember this, like, Winnie the Pooh quote. It says, how lucky am I that I have something that makes saying goodbye difficult. I said, Manny, the reason why it's so hard uh, to say goodbye is because grandparents and your cousins mean so much to you. It's a blessing to have people like that. And so we said our goodbyes, and then we came here. And of the many things that I've learned 
throughout my sabbatical. It's the ancient and old lessons that I'm reminded of this morning. That no matter what we go through in life, no matter what we do in life, no matter how much money, how much success, how much fame we get, it will always be about relationships. It will always be about relationships. I see that when I walk into churches and I hear these amazing preachers, but I walk out of there saying, I don't think I'd come back to this church ever if I lived here because I felt like I was a nobody versus a church where they greeted me like I'd been part of their group for years. I, I was reminded that relationships are everything as I hang out and as we, uh, Dihan and I talk and we say, hey, you know what, that was a $440 coffee meetup, but if we had to do it again, man, we'd pay for this all over again because this is the stuff that matters. I was reminded of that as I saw the tears coming down Manny's face, our eight-year-old girl, and she realizes, man, it's not the food that I'm going to miss. It's not the playing on video games that I'm going to miss. It's the, it's the people. Because it's something that we know, but something we need to be reminded of often, that at the end of our lives and at the end of any season of life, we need to be reminded it's not money, it's not popularity, it's not grades, it's not fame, it's not acclaim, it's not praise, it's not any of those things. It's the relationships that we have that's going to matter the most when all is said and done. I know you know this. I know you've been reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this. So today what I want to do is I want to begin uh, just a three-week quick series on three relationships in particular that you and I need to have. There are three relationships with three people in this lifetime that we need to have in order for us to really be everything that God has created us to be. Not talking about God, that's a given, but three relationships with three kinds of people. You may have heard this before, but uh, we need to have in our lives, every one of us needs to have a Paul, we need to have a Barnabas, and we need to have a Timothy. That means we need to have someone who's gone ahead of us in the journey. Someone, maybe they're older, but they're more wiser, they're more mature than us. We need to have somebody like that who's guiding us, leading us, speaking to us, leading us, and pouring into our lives. That's a pause. That's what we're going to talk about today. We need a Barnabas, someone who probably appear, maybe a little bit older, a little bit younger, whomever it might be, but somebody that you consider a friend. This is my brother, this is my sister, and they're going to spur me to become more like Jesus. We're going to pour into each other. We're going to pray together. People like Dihan for me, people People like, uh, you know, whomever it is for you, people in your house, church, your Bible study class, people like that who's going to run the race with you, and then we need people like Timothy, younger people, maybe not necessarily younger in age, but younger in maturity that you're pouring into, that you're giving your life to. We all need a Paul, we all need a Barnabas, we all need a Timothy. In the Old Testament, we need a Moses, we need a Caleb, we need a Joshua. We need people like that. Today, I want to talk about what it means to need a Paul, to have a Paul in our lives. We're going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 12. Paul was writing as the mentor to his student, to his disciple, to his mentee, uh, Timothy. This is the second letter that he wrote. Uh, this is the last letter that Paul would write before he would enter into glory. Uh, Paul aged old grizzled, experienced life, old man, uh, last letter, writing to Timothy, the word of God for the people of God, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, writing to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank my God, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience. As night and day, Timothy, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. 
This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who's destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. And this is God's word. So here's Paul writing this letter to Timothy. And if you read what he writes in verse 2, the way that, that Paul addresses Timothy is, is huge. It says, to Timothy, my dear son. So Paul was <clears throat> not Timothy's biological father. That he met Timothy much later in life. But the way that he addresses him, he calls him my dear son. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, I'm going to be like a father to you. Right? Your faith came from uh, Eunice and then Lois' grandma. Uh, dad's not in the picture. He was a Gentile and, and probably not a believer. And so in the absence, in the void of a biological father who could lead him spiritually, Paul said, I'm going to be a father to you. That's who Paul was to Timothy. He was a role model. He was an example. He was a mentor. Whenever Timothy had a question, like, what would it be, what would it look like if I, I, I never met Jesus in this lifetime, but if I could see Jesus with skin on here in front of me, what would it look like? It was Paul. Right? Paul would look as close to Jesus, like Jesus, as anyone else to Timothy. And my submission to you this morning is that we all need a Paul in our lives, Someone who will mentor us, someone who will lead us, someone who will guide us, someone who will direct us, someone who will speak into our lives. The first thought that we see here, first thought that we see is that you need, <clears throat> your, first thought is that you're never too old and you're never too mature that you don't need a spiritual parent. Okay? You're never too old and you're never too mature. Okay? So Paul apparently met whom he calls his dear son, Timothy. Paul apparently met Timothy when Timothy was a, a youth student. We don't exactly know the age, but in Acts chapter 14, it says Paul's going on this missionary journey, and he does this mission trip to a town called Lystra, and that's where Timothy is. And he meets him. Some commentaries say that uh, it may have been in the home of Timothy that Paul, the missionary, would stay during his time in Lystra. Can you imagine that. I know some of you, uh, you open up your homes to pastors, to missionaries, and we have conferences and things like that. Uh, you have people staying in your homes. Can you imagine? Like, hey, yeah, Timothy, uh, we're having guests over. Who's staying? Uh, the Apostle Paul. <laughs> like, that'd be crazy. Like, you don't need an alarm clock. Paul's probably waking up early to pray for all the people that he's praying for. And, and, and when you sit down to eat, like, you're always on your best behavior because you got Paul, like, he's... He's this like crazy missionary. He's, the, he's the, 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 the Christian statesman par excellence, the one that you want to know what it is to follow Jesus. You read Paul's letters. This is Paul in living flesh in front of you. And he's most likely staying with Timothy. The impact, the impression that he would have had on this young, young child, young boy. Two chapters later in Acts 16, Paul has since left Lystra. He comes back to Lystra. Timothy is much older now, probably in his late teens, maybe 18, 19, maybe 20 years old. We're not exactly sure. But Paul goes to Lystra and he says, Timothy, come with me. We're going to do some missions work together. You're going to come with me and we're going we're to just broadcast the gospel throughout Asia Minor. And so as Timothy's going with Paul, he's living with him. He's seeing the fire within him. He's seeing the character within him. He's seeing all the, not only the good things, but the bad things about, about Paul's life. And so here we are at the end of Paul's life. So just as much as Paul has grown and matured, Timothy has grown and matured. He's grown and matured to the point where he's now a pastor. Timothy's a pastor. He's pastoring the most influential church in that area, the church in Ephesus, the church to whom the letter Ephesians was written to. So Timothy's the pastor of that church. And you remember maybe in 1 Timothy, if you're a youth student, 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul writes to that same Timothy. says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Shoot, boy, you rise up. 
You set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and purity. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. And when we read that, we think high school student. Don't let them look down on you because you're young. He wasn't a high school student. I think he's like 30 years old, like maybe 40. It's just that he was much younger than the other people in his church. What's the point? <laughs> Here's the point. Timothy's an old man now. He's a man now. And yet Paul refers to him as my dear son. Here's the point. You're never too old and you're never too mature that you don't need a spiritual parent anymore. I was at Target the other day and, you know, Target's confusing now. They redid all their stuff. So I don't know where anything is. And I was trying to find something or other. I ended up at the book section and was hanging out there because I was waiting for somebody. But I picked up this book called I Love You Forever. It's in the children's section. But it teaches a lot of grown-up stuff. Um, but it's kind of a creepy book. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Some of you have read it. Um, you could find it at probably your local Target. But the story is told at the beginning, at least, the perspective of a new mom, and she's cradling her little baby boy. And, uh, you know, she sings this song, and she says, I love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And so it takes you through these different stages in life. The baby turns two, and baby's like walking around, and baby takes mom's watch and throws it in the toilet. And she's so, ah, pulling out her hair, so frustrated. But at the end of the night when baby's sleeping, she opens a door, makes sure she's really, baby's really sleeping, crawls on the floor, and I don't know any mom who does this, picks the baby up while they're sleeping. Who does that? And the last thing a mom does is pick a sleeping baby. You get as far away from that baby as you can so that that baby can sleep so that you can sleep. But she picks up that baby, and she cradles it like this, and she says, I love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Puts it back down and leaves. This is weird. Nine years old, right? Here's this boy. He's like crazy. Grandma, grandpa come over. He cusses at grandma, grandpa. It's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you just did that. But at night, when he goes to sleep, opens the door, makes sure he's sleeping, crawls on the floor, Picks up this nine-year-old boy, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be, puts him down. Like, who does that? Gets creepier, right? He becomes a teenager. He's got weird friends, weird clothes, listens to weird music, and just drives her up the wall. But same thing. At night, opens the door, I think he's asleep. I'll crawl on the floor, I'll pick up my 16-year-old son. I love you forever. I like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. Puts him down. Like, she's a strong woman. It gets creepier. Okay, check this out. He gets married. He moves off across town. He's living by himself now, or living with his family, presumably. And on some dark nights, she would drive across town. She would look in the window, cr cross through the window just to make sure he's sleeping, and when he's asleep, she picks up that 30-year-old man, sits in a rocking chair, and is holding him like this. I, w I mean, this is weird stuff. It's a best-selling book, though. I don't understand it. I was going to show the, the, the picture of that page, but then it was like so creepy. I thought I'd scare some of our seventh graders, so I, I didn't want to do that. She's picking up, she's got an old lady with a bun, you know, a lot of old ladies, white hair and buns and glasses and like granny clothes on a rocking chair holding her 30-year-old son and she's looking at him, I love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And she, this Hulk lady puts her son down and then she leaves. It's crazy, I mean there's a great moral at the end, at the end of the story, she gets old and she's sick and the son holds his mother, and he sings this song, I love you forever, I like you for always, and, and all that stuff. But the point is, the point to me just telling all of this is to say that to a parent looking at their child, no matter how old that child gets, he or she will never be too old to need a parent. It's the same thing that Paul is saying to Timothy. It's the same thing that God is saying to us. Like my parents make me feel this way too. I'm, I, I know uh, Chris Lee, our Fukuoka House Church Shepherd, w w shared that as well. Like his, our moms, like we're like 40-some years old, but our moms treat us like we're five. Because to them, we're always going to be a child. And we're always going to need guidance. We're always going to need direction because we do stupid things, don't we? No matter how old we get. Have you done anything stupid recently? 
while we're getting ready for service, I thought about something stupid that I did because we're about to do communion. In Ecuador, in this one village, like this one remote, remote village, uh, I forget, it's so remote, I forget what it's called, but we're in this one village and we serve communion. And after communion is served, after we do all the communion, um, we're supposed to drink the uh, elements or, or eat all the bread and, and make sure that nothing is left over. And so um, there's this one man with an ice cream truck who was there and he was standing up the front just kind of hovering. So I said, here, why don't you drink the juice? Um, it's all in Spanish, and he said, all of it? I was like, yeah, go for it, and he got really happy. He was like chugging the juice, and at the end, man, this guy was like the happiest ice cream salesman I've ever seen in my life. I was like, dude, that might, he really loved that, 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 that juice, and then I realized, holy snap, that was wine, not juice. So I gave this dude like this much wine to chug, and so he was like, he was like all red and bright, and like he was selling everybody, giving everybody ice cream. Oh, my gosh. Like, I do some stupid things sometimes. You ever do anything stupid? Holy cow. Go back to that village in Ecuador. That's the man who got me drunk. (laughs) Crazy. I do some stupid things, and we probably do too. And as long as we're doing stupid stuff, we're going to need somebody over us who guides us, directs us, and calls us son or daughter. Because here's the most egregious thing about it. A lot of times we do stupid things, but we don't even realize that they're stupid. There I was just a couple months ago. I thought I was doing something really good. And I looked back and I said, wow, even two months ago, I was really boneheaded. Here's what that means. This is what Tim Keller says. That means that every point in your life, you did something that you thought was stupid when you look back on it now. That means right now, you're going to do something. You're doing something stupid that you're going to, five years later, future you is going to look back and say, you know what? That was really dumb of you to do. And wisdom and maturity is the ability to say, you know what? I need people to help me because I do some really stupid things. Are you able to recognize in yourself the limitless capacity to do stupid things? (laughs) Because unless you are, you're not going to realize your need for somebody like Paul. You're never too old, and you're never too... This is Timothy. He's a pastor of the most influential church in Asia Minor, probably of the world at that time. He's like, man, I need help. The challenging thing, right, I was talking with someone somewhat recently and they've been in campus ministry for about 30, 35 years, and they're saying one of the things that's changed in college students between then and now is that now young people have a very difficult time receiving correction and rebuke. Is that you? When you hear something from someone at house church during a sermon, during a one-on-one, someone's talking to you, and they call you out on something, how do you receive that? This is what they said, two responses. Some get angry and others get defensive. Right? They're saying, this is, what I, this is what I've seen, counseling hundreds of college students through the years. Do you get angry? Do you get defensive when someone says, hey, you know what? Uh, the way that you talk to people, I don't think it really honors Christ sometimes especially when you haven't had coffee or especially when you're hungry or especially when, you know, you're stressed out at work. Or when someone says, hey, you know what, I, I think the way, that, uh, the way that you talk to your wife, the way you talk to your husband, I don't think that's really edifying. Or, hey, you know what, I think, uh, I, I think you ought to um, begin fasting and praying for certain areas of your life. How, how do we respond to correction in our lives, because one of the marks of maturity is to recognize that I haven't reached it yet, and I need help. I need help. I need people in my life who are going to speak to me and help me and correct me and lead me and guide me, because you're never too old and you're never too mature to no longer need a spiritual parent. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy and what he's saying to us. That's the first thing. Second thing that we see is you need a spiritual parent who not only walked the road but who also walks the walk. You need a spiritual parent who not only has walked the road, but who walks the walk. The reason it's important that they, they, they've walked the road before is because they see things that we don't see. It's called blind spots. 
Sometimes when we're, uh, there's a group of us who live on uh, about 10, 15 minutes from church and we drive the same roads to church and we drive the same roads out of church and, and sometimes they'll send a message and saying, hey, be careful, there's a cop on Stony Brook Parkway or be careful, there's a cop on 535, you gotta be careful, don't drive fast past that road, past that, this particular neighborhood. It's great to have people who've gone before us because they can help us to see things that we don't see. How foolish would it be for me to say, oh, I got that text and say, whatever, I'm just going to speed by that neighborhood anyways. But that's what we do sometimes. We think they're trying to rob us of a joy, of a, of a joy ride, trying to rob us of, man, they don't, they're just jealous of the power of my Toyota Camry. They don't, they don't, they're trying to kill my joy. They're trying to steal my joy. No, if, if especially if people are, pre- look at, look at what he, he says in verse three. He says, night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. If someone constantly remembers you in their prayers like that, then you especially need to listen to what they say. If they're willing to love you enough to pray for you in that way, then the wisdom from which they're drawing isn't simply earthly, worldly wisdom. They're not trying to rob you of life. They're trying to protect you and guide you. If they say, hey, that relationship that you're getting in, I think you should be wary of that. Hey, I think your, your love for money is getting a little bit out of control because all I see in your eyes are dollar signs. Hey, don't you think you're spending a little bit too much time on that, on that shopping website or w- whatever it is? They're not saying that because they want to rob you of life and joy. And so here's what Paul is saying. I've walked this road before, Timothy, and there are blind spots. There are things that you don't see. There's things that all of us don't see about our lives. Things that it may be obvious to you and obvious to everybody else, but may not be obvious. It's kind of like when you got a, a sorry, when you got a booger hanging out your nose. Like you're the last one to notice it. Everybody else sees it. Just takes a friend, it takes a Paul, it takes somebody to say, hey, I don't want to look at anyone right now, just in case you got one. But it takes a real friend right, to say, hey, you got something, you got to deal with that thing. Because even though other people see it, we may not see it. And so here's, here, here's Timothy. His thing, verse 6, says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. For all we know about Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. He's pastoring this great church. But Timothy was very insecure. He was fearful. He was stressed. He was anxious about it. So much that it, at the end of this letter, Paul says, Hey, listen, uh, you got ulcers. You're getting ulcers because you're so stressed out about the ministry and about the life that you're living and about the people you're trying to serve. Hey, that's not who you are. God has made you to be more than that. And so he's speaking life into Timothy, helping him to see, exposing the blind spots so that he might be able to live in the fullness of what God created Timothy to be. This is what people like Paul do for people like us. They show us the things that we can't see. There was one of my good friends in, in college he was, uh, in, in high school, he was kind of a thug. He was a, he was a Korean-American guy, but he lived in a place uh, in, in Temple Hills, Maryland, Oxon Hill, PG County, Prince George's, but people call it pretty ghetto, right? Some of, some of us know that area. Uh, he grew up as one of the only Asians in that, in that place, um, predominantly African-American and, and Hispanic Latino communities. Um, and he'd see a lot of gang, gang activity. He'd see a lot of people getting hurt, and he realized, man, if I don't, join in with the strong people, the bullies, that I'm going to get bullied myself. And so he would do whatever. He, he, was, he, he came to have a reputation as the crazy Asian, like the one who would do anything. Like he will eat anything. He will run across any street. He will do whatever it takes. And then he would come back to the group, and they would applaud him, and they would love him. And he said, man, this is a way to live. And then he began to realize that in that group they protected him because they thought he was funny. And so this was his life. Just get people to like me by doing crazy things. Be funny. Be fun. And everyone will like you and life will be okay. So he got to college, first year in college, and he came to know Jesus. But you know, coming to know Jesus is one thing. Becoming more and more like Jesus takes a long time. And so as he was growing and growing in his relationship with Jesus, he still had those old habits that I got to be the funniest one. I got to be the loudest one. I got to be the center of attention. I got to be the one that everybody loves. But he had a Paul in his life who saw all those things happen. He said, hey, you know what? Uh, when you become a Christian, you no longer become the one on the throne of your life. That becomes Jesus. And it's no longer 
And you can still be fun. You can still be funny. But all of that is no longer to draw people to you. But all of your life should point people to Jesus. And he said, some of the things that you do, some of the things that you say, don't draw people to Jesus. In fact, they draw people away from him because what you think is funny, and other people might think is funny, at the wrong time, it hurts people, makes them feel bad. It excludes people. Everyone else in the room may be laughing, but they're, at their expense, they're not laughing. And so they began having this series of conversations. And he said, hey, listen, um, I'm going to tip you off. So when you say something in a crowd, in a, in, a, in a situation, in a group of people, when you say something that is not funny or that's not appropriately funny or it's funny but just not the right context, I'm going to give you a signal. And so my friend would hear that, see that signal, and then afterwards they would talk about it. He'd say, well, that, that, that was funny. That was funny. They're like, no, that wasn't funny. It wasn't funny? No, it wasn't funny. Okay. Hey, was that, was that not funny? No, that was funny, but we're at a funeral, dude. You ain't trying to make people laugh. Right? So he would tell him, and he would correct him, and he would help him because he had these blind spots in his life that he didn't see. And through that, he was shaping him, and he was molding him, and he was helping him to see the things that everybody else saw, but he didn't see about himself. And through that, he began to breathe life into him. And my friend began to grow and grow and grow in his relationship with the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. We need people like that to see blind spots in our lives. But the question is, are you willing to hear that from people? Or do you get defensive? And you just say, that's just who I am. Or I've always been like that. Or, hey, that's how everybody else is. And we ain't trying to be like everybody else. Trying to become more and more like Jesus. And it's people like Paul that help mold Christ in us to make us more like him. One of the things that, that he did, not only did he do that in, in exposing blind spots, verse 6 says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul had prayed for Timothy, and there was this gift that had been imparted in Timothy. We don't know what it is, and I think, you know, a lot of times, Paul is a little bit cryptic and, and, and discreet about some of the things that only insiders know. But I think in God's providence, it helps us because it helps us to generalize things which are specific to the original audience. But whatever that gift was, Timothy had it, but he was afraid and he was timid. And Paul is trying to breathe. He's trying, there's this little, little ember of a flame in Timothy. And Paul's trying to, to blow that so that becomes you know, we're in California, there are wildfires all around. So Paul is trying to spark a wildfire, fan that into flame so that Timothy just blows up on fire for God. Some of you are embers ready to pop. But you need someone like Paul to breathe into you, to breathe vision, to breathe dream, to give you the permission to fly and to soar with Christ. When I... Uh, graduated college. I spent a year doing campus ministry in my university, and then I went back up to Northern Virginia. I was about 23, yeah, 22, 23 years old. I'd stay up there for two years until I moved down here. During that time, uh, there was a, a Paul-like figure in my life, a mentor. Uh, his name was Hank. He was my pastor at my home church in, in Virginia. And when I went up uh, to, to Virginia over that, uh, that summer, that fall, uh, Hank, so Hank was the the best preacher that I had known. Um, he could, I mean, he was engaging, he was funny, he was winsome, he was convicting, and he always would, would lead us to Christ. And so when I first got up to Northern Virginia, Hank said, hey, DL, um, we've got this college and singles group, about 100 people. He's like, I've been teaching this whole time, but I want to tag team with you. I want you to take four weeks. We're going to go through the Gospel of Mark. I want you to take four weeks, and then I'll take four weeks. So you take four weeks, and I take four weeks. And, and I remember the fact that he had given me this opportunity. I'd never done two weeks in a row, let alone four. So this is way beyond my comfort. But the fact that he had given me this opportunity, like, made me feel like, wow, maybe I can actually do this. Like, maybe I can, maybe I can, can be somewhat good like Hank is and, and communicate truth. I love doing it, but I didn't, I didn't know if this was what I was supposed to do and if I was good at doing it. And so he gave me these opportunities. The thing is, like, I was so fearful and insecure. 23 years old, 
that in, in, a, in a group of 100 people, I wanted so much to connect with everyone that if one person wasn't get, if one person was falling asleep or if one person was dozing off or looking at something else or if one person was talking or one person was looking out the window, like I would get so flustered and take that so personally. And I remember there would be times where I'd be teaching on, on, on Mark, whatever it was, and, and like three or four or five people are like that. Think about it, it's like 20, 30 people are like that. I just wanted to run away. I just wanted to look for the nearest exit. You know, they sign the airplane, uh, find the nearest exit, so that in a case of emergency, I was me. I was like, man, where's the nearest exit? I don't want to run out. I never did, obviously, because then I'd have to eventually come back. People were like, dude, you all right? <laughs> but, so I never did that. But in my heart, I was running. I was like a, running away from all that. And the way that it would manifest itself outwardly was like I'd start sweating like crazy, like weird, crazy kind of sweating. Like snowing, a blizzard, snowstorm out there. I'm wearing a cutoff T-shirt and I'm like drip. They're like, dude, what's wrong with you, man? Like this crippling, gripping, anxious Thoughts that were just, so I understand when people say, hey, I don't want to come up here. I don't want to become a member because I don't want to share my testimony. Like, I, I understand. And for week, week after week after week, that's the kind of thing that would happen. I would just start sweating and my clothes would be all sweaty. And, and at one point, um, I got a note from, from Hank, my, my mentor, my Paul. And he, I mean, he was so gentle and, and loving in the way that he said it. He said, D.L., you're one of the most transparent people I know. <laughs> That's what he said. When you're up there and you're feeling it, man, everybody feels that and they feed off of that. But when you're not feeling it, we can sense that too. <laughs> we can see that. I was like, really? No kidding, man. I'm like sweating bullets and like splash zone was coming from me, not from them, but like crazy stuff happening. And he's like, but here's what you need to understand. He said, I got a lot of friends who are doing this. I know a lot of pastors, but you as a 23-year-old lay person, like you got to believe me when I say this. Man, you're doing it better than most of these people I know who've been doing it for a long time. That you got to understand that God has called you to this. That he's called you to preach the word of God. And when you get flustered and when you get frustrated and you feel like nobody's paying attention, you need to rise above that because even if there's one person who needs to hear that, that's your calling. you got to rise above that and you got to preach. And you got to do this the best you can. And I remember reading that and it was like, he was pouring all kinds of like, I don't know what it was into my heart. Like that note changed my life in ministry. I don't know what, I don't know what my life would be if he hadn't spoken those words into my heart and into my life and into my hearing that day. But it gave me the confidence because I knew that man, this man had walked down this road before. Not only had he walked down that road, but he walked the walk also. Like he lived it, he knew what he was talking about. When I wanted to know what it was like to, to be a preacher, I look at his life, I look at him. That was it, he showed me. This is a, what, what Paul is saying here. Man, we not only have blind spots that we don't see, but there's a dream and there's a destiny that's lying dormant in some people. And we need to see that come alive in us by being willing to have somebody speak into our lives. By having someone speak that truth into us, to breathe that dream, to breathe that life, to light that spark within us. We've got a bunch of gasoline here. God wants to set fire to that. And the reason why Timothy could believe what Paul said was because he saw it lived out. He saw it lived out in Lystra. He saw it lived out in these missionary journeys, and he sees it lived out now while Paul is sitting in prison. So he says, Paul writes to him and he says, don't be ashamed, verse 8, to testify about our Lord. Don't be ashamed about me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Paul's not saying, Timothy, it's hard, man. You've got to suffer for the gospel. He's saying, you're going to suffer, but look at me. I'm doing it also. Follow me as I follow Christ. And he got that into him. 
Hey, don't follow people, guys. Don't follow people, Twitter, whatever it is, Instagram, just because they've walked the road. Follow them because they walk the walk. Don't follow people because their tweets are awesome and you can retweet that and, and you can sound smart doing that or because their quotes really inspire your soul. Follow them because they follow Jesus and because they walk the walk. There's a whole ton of people, can I tell you, a whole ton of people in evangelical, Christian, in evangelical American Christianity who have tweetable sayings. But you find someone who's walking it and living it, you follow them because they're worth their weight in gold. Because those are rare. People like Paul who follow Jesus and say, follow me as I follow him. It's huge. Because there's a believability to it when they've walked the walk. You know, that's part of why we're intergenerational here. It's because a lot of churches where it's just... 6th grade to 12th grade, and, and, and the oldest people they see is, is, is 12th graders or college students who come back. That's helpful, but I think there's got to be a, a depth and breadth of life experience that really makes those words believable. The last church I went to in California, I, I, I kind of stumbled into it, but I wanted to go because some of our people at, at, at church here had asked me about this church, and I, I, I said I'd heard about it, but I don't know anything about it. It's kind of a, a network, a movement. Uh, maybe a denomination, but so I, I went to that church as my last church, and uh, I walked in, and I was probably in the 10% youngest uh, of the youngest group there. Most of the people were 50 and older. A lot of them, a lot of them looking out white hair. A lot of them had walkers as they came in. Uh, I didn't know that this was going to be such a church. During greeting, like greeting time, let's get up and say hi to a few people. Like that was like super long. You think it's long here? It was super long. And I think because for them to get up with their walkers, like it took them like a long time. And so they said, if we're going to stand up, you better make this worth our while. And so they would greet for a long, long time. And I'd be like talking to people. And the two people in front of me, husband, and I, I believe they're a husband and wife couple. They were like really like sitting next to each other closely. They both had hearing aids in them. And so they said, hello. I said, hello. They said, what? <laughs> I said, hello. What? <laughs> Never mind. Thank you. Uh, and I walked off to the next. But that, that's the kind of group it was. So we're singing these songs. Um, yeah, the, the, songs were, the songs were good. The way they played them were a little bit hokey to me because it's, you know, an older group with their banjo and all this stuff. But um, we came to this one point, and everyone is sitting during the praise time, right, because, you know, you gotta, you got to flow with the congregation, right? But during this one song, it was like either the last song or the next to last song. Singing this song, and you see these elderly people like leaning on their canes, like trying to stand up, and, and so they, they stand up. And so they sang this song a couple times. I'd never heard this song before, and I thought, man, this song is really kind of hokey. <laughs> but I looked it up, and it was like Matt Redman wrote it. I was like, oh, that, maybe it's a good song. <laughs> so... So these are the words that cause these people to stand up. It says, standing on this mountaintop, looking just how far we've come, knowing that for every step, you were with us, kneeling on this battleground, seeing just how much you've done, knowing every victory was your power in me scars and struggles on the way but with joy our hearts can say yes our hearts can say never once did we ever walk alone never once did you leave us on our own you are faithful God you are faithful and as they sang that line never once did we walk alone like almost every hand was lifted to the sky wrinkly hands could barely lift them but with everything within them the cry of their heart being expressed in their bodies never once did we ever walk alone never once did you leave us you are faithful God you are faithful and can I tell you that means so much more to me when I see it in the lives of 60 70 80 year old people than when I see it in the lives of 10 year olds Ten-year-olds can say it, and it's meaningful to me when ten-year-olds lift their hand and say, standing on this mountaintop, looking how far we've come. 
scars and bruises lined the way? Yeah, yeah, they've got some. But to see it in the lives of those who've walked the path and walked the walk, I don't know what those hands represented lifted up. I think, I'm sure, that in a crowd that large, some of them represented cancer that they've been through. And yet along the way, with joy, we can say, never once, never once did we ever walk alone. I can imagine that those hands lifted up represented things like wayward children or kids who had overdosed on drugs or dreams that had never come to be materialized, people that they, they, they were in love with who'd either gone on to glory or never gave that love back to them. I don't know what those hands represented, but I know that scars lined the way in their lives. And they're saying, yet this I can say with all of my heart, that you never left us alone. You never left us alone. God, you are faithful. Lord, you are faithful. We need people like that in our lives who are going to tell us these stories, who are going to help us to see. And that's what Paul was for Timothy. It wasn't Paul saying to Timothy, hey, Timothy, you got to follow me. Look at me. I'm awesome. Look at all the great things I'm doing. He's saying, no, look at me. Scars in my life. 39 times, look at me. Look at my back. Look at the times I was whipped. But never once did he leave me. He was always faithful. God called me to this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I didn't choose this, he's saying. He's not saying, Timothy, look at all the great things that I've done. Saying, look at my brokenness, look at my weakness, yet with joy, this is what we can say. Join with me in suffering for the gospel because he has saved and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace that came through Jesus who destroyed death and brought life. Because for many of us, this is what we will do and this is what the world will do for us. They will either define us by our best moments or they will define us by our worst moments. We will define ourselves by our worst moments. This is me, timid, shy Timothy. I can't do this. I can't leave this church. I'm insecure. I'm fearful. But that's not what God does. God defines you not by your worst moments, not even by your best moments. He defines you by his best moment. His best moment was at Calvary. When all of the punishment for all the sins that you and I committed, for all of our brokenness, all of our pain, all the times we abandoned God, all of our faithfulness was nailed to the cross in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who came and appeared, and yet death could not hold him down. He conquered the grave. He robbed. God is the grave robber as we sing. You and I are no longer, Timothy was no longer defined by our worst or by our best. We're defined by the best of God. It says this is who you are. No matter how old you get, no matter how old you think you are, no matter how mature you get, no matter how mature you think you are, he sings this song over you. Never once will you walk alone as he cradles you in his hands and he says, I love you forever. I will like you for always. As long as I'm living and I will never die. My child you will be. We need people like Paul in our lives to tell us that these things are true, to speak into our lives, and to point us to the gospel, to point us to grace. You're never too old. You're never too mature. So we follow them as they follow Christ. Let's do that together. Let's pray. How is your heart this morning? Is your heart teachable to the wisdom of those who've gone before you? Are you willing to hear and receive the words of life that help you to see the blind spots? Are you open to a new direction, a new destiny? through the lips, through the heart of a Paul. Speak into your life to lead you and guide you. Are you willing to receive correction like that? Admonition, encouragement, guidance. We all need people like that. People who will ultimately point us to Christ. Remind us that these things are true. So let's pray. One for your heart and two for your Paul. Lord, I need a Paul in my life. Bring someone like that in my life. That I would give them the permission to speak to me, to help me, to correct me. 
Lord, I need someone like that so that I might be all that I was made to be. So pray for that. Pray for your heart and then pray that God would raise up a Paul in your life that you would follow them as they follow Christ. Let's pray like that for half a minute. I'm going to continue to pray in preparation to come to this table. as we prepare to come to this table. This is for those who have already professed faith in Christ and been baptized or confirmed as an adult. If you're going to come to this table, let's examine our hearts. Aware of our sin, we become aware of grace. And only to the extent that we see our sin will we see the beauty of grace. Let's spend a few moments in confessing our sin, acknowledging it, mourning over, for it was our sin that drove the nails into the hands of our beloved Savior. And let's make a choice as we come to this table to turn away from sin. Maybe it's a love of stuff, desire to accumulate things. Maybe it's wanting to steal glory from God. Maybe it's struggling in your thought life, your temptations, things you spend your time on, things that you've laid eyes on, relationships with people, alcohol, things that you ought not be doing because it does not honor the Lord God. What are those things in your life? Let's spend a few moments in repentance. The more we see our sin, the bigger our sin, the greater the news bigger the gospel. Let's spend another half minute, a minute praying, really doing an inventory, surrendering our sin before the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that there was a Paul for Timothy and that for every Timothy, there is a Paul. Father, we pray that you would help us to realize the utter and absolute need in our hearts for people like Paul in our lives to incarnate grace to live the gospel, to help us to see with our eyes what is only theory on paper. And Lord, may we be these kinds of people like Paul to countless others, one generation to the next, declaring in selfless faith that God is worthy. So help us, Lord. We need you. We need you. We love you because you've loved us first. Pray these things in Jesus' name.